What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Active Texan Podcast. I'm Dr. Brian Watts, your host. And today we have a special guest with us, Chad Barron. Chad, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, so just a little quick introduction. Uh, Chad's currently the membership director at Pebble Creek Country Club here in College Station, uh, where he was the former head golf professional there for, I believe, 12 years um, or so, around 12 years. And then he's also currently coaching a local just female soccer club, right? That's correct. This girls club. Mm-hmm. Girls Soccer Club, the Blue Blazers. Um, is that the actual name? Is it's right? uh, just Blazers. Blazers oh. FC now. <laughs> well, they're blue. They, yeah, <laughs> originally we were the Blue Blazers when we first started. So. Okay, Blazers FC here in College Station. Um, so a little more details about uh, Chad and his family. He, he's he been at Pebble Creek Country Club for, it looks like, two different times, 1996 to 2002, and then he returned as golf head golf professional in 2008 to 2020. Now he's the membership director, and he's also helps out a lot there with the food and beverage services. Um, and he just, I mean, it sounds like you really love the club. I mean, you've been there a long time, and uh, you love the game of golf, and now you're getting into soccer, and you love Aggieland because you and your wife, Nancy, both graduated 1997-95 as Aggies, and you've got, love spending time with your family. You've got three kids, 18, 16, and 13. Um, and I'm excited about this conversation, number one, because – I love golf and soccer. Yeah, very good. <laughs> and that's a good combo. So yeah. uh, me and Chad have kind of gotten along from the very beginning since we met. Um, and yeah, why don't you fill in the blanks there a little bit about kind of where you grew up and then kind of the sports you're involved in and then how you kind of got to where you are now. Okay, well, I grew up not far from here at all. Uh, small town called Huntsville, Texas, that uh, anybody from this area, I'm sure has heard of it. I get the uh, prison joke that oh, yeah. quickly accompanies that every time you tell somebody you're from Huntsville. Um, Grew up around sports my whole life. Uh, my dad was very big into basketball, so I was given a basketball probably before I was given anything else in my life to hold um, and any other sport I could get my hands on. So if it had a ball, I was in from the time I was a kid and um, went on to play basketball in college at the uh, United States Air Force Academy on a basketball scholarship. And um, anybody who's connected to the academies might know one of the nuances of being involved with a service academy is that you have up until two years to decide if you want to transfer out. Um, They call it out processing. And if you do it within that two year window, you don't owe anything in terms of service back to the academy. Um, If you stay beyond that two years, then you owe one year active, two years reserve duty for every year of school. So, for example, if you stay all four, you know, four years active, eight years reserves, 12 year commitment. So it's a big commitment to make a decision that you have to make at that stage in your life. And you're 17, 18 years old. It's a big one to kind of put your arms around. Um, but I, I certainly was willing to give it a shot, went out there and experienced it. It was an awesome experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything in my life. Um, but it led me back to where I am now, back to Texas A&M, back to College Station, uh, more importantly, back to my wife and the family that I have today. So it's been a good journey, but um, nonetheless, sports has always kind of seemed to be interwoven into everything that I've done at this stage of my life. And um, so it's it's even led to my career choice, obviously. Uh, so How did your dad get you into basketball? You said it was him that kind of got you into it. Yeah, he was a tremendous basketball player. Um, he was uh, what they, at that time in the, in the 50s, they call a little All-American. Uh, he was an All-American at Lamar University, okay. and now we have FBS and FCS to relate between schools and Division One and 
one double A. It was a little different back then for him, uh, but he was good enough to be uh, invited. At that time, you're invited into the NBA draft, so it's very different than how they conduct the NBA draft now. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he was invited by the Detroit Pistons and the Baltimore Wrens and the Kansas City Steers, who later became Kansas City Bulls and now Chicago Bulls organization. So he has a really cool story to his background, but long story short for my dad is that he embarked on that dream for a very short time because he'd already met and married my mom. And within seven months of him going off to try to play in the NBA, she called him back, letting him know that she was pregnant. Hmm. So he had to make a tough choice. At that time, you don't get paid in the NBA, which you're getting paid in the NBA today, or it wouldn't have been too tough a choice for him. Yeah. Uh, But Essentially, he made the choice to come back um, to be more present in that experience for his first child and uh, to continue his education. So he went back and they moved to Alabama. He went to get his master's degree at Auburn. Uh, so he has a little war eagle in him. And, um, and beyond that, he was always involved in coaching and you know stayed involved in basketball. All of his best friends, of course, were made – through basketball. So he had really close relationships with basketball types. I mean, I grew up around Billy Tubbs, who's a national championship basketball coach because of my dad's relationship with coach Tubbs. And so I just was around it. I, you know, people call it a gym rat, I guess, but mm-hmm. um, even from the time I was two and three and four, I was stuck over on a bleacher while the balls were bouncing and stuff was going around. So it was only natural that I, you know, felt inclined to take part in it mm-hmm. and grew to love it because of that. I guess. So he didn't even encourage you to play basketball. He, you were just around. He him. really didn't. I'm, I'm the youngest of a family of four and my older two brothers really didn't play basketball. I mean, they enjoyed sports, but not on a level that I enjoyed sports and they were good athletes, but didn't have the same gifts that my dad probably had. And I was fortunate enough to get a lot of those gifts, not nearly as many as he did, not nearly as many as my dad had, but my dad could see that early on too. And so he just kind of let it foster itself, but he didn't push it on me by any means, but he did take part in my growth because he coached me, you know, so if I was going to play little dribblers, he coached it, but he coached my older two brothers the same and they just didn't have the same passion for it that I had. So, um, I think he he saw that as kind of a blessing. It was his last kid, and he, he found one of the four that maybe had the same kind of passion for what he really had a passion for. And so we, that was something that we could share. So yeah. that was good. It was it was good for me. Yeah. Did that? Um, did you play? You said you played multiple sports growing up. I mean, basketball. Of course, you ended up eventually probably focusing on that if you played it in college. Mm-hmm. Um, even somewhere like the Air Force, it's not a small thing to play. Um, yeah, Division One basketball. Is, yeah, <laughs> I played. I mean, because I was on travel teams and all star teams, my dad put a lot of time and effort in into my development too. You know, so I, I was I traveled all over through from junior high through high school playing basketball, and the AAU circuit then isn't what it is today. I mean, even travel soccer, travel baseball. We'll get into talking about kids here in a little while, but there's so much. It's so much more competitive, but there's so much more available to kids now too. Um, but back then, at least my dad knew the right people where there weren't as many channels to get involved on that level as a kid. But my dad knew the right people to at least get me connected to 
invitation only type camps that you could go to and get in front of scouts and things like that. So it helped, it helped my exposure, but it also helped the level of competition that I got to play against. And ultimately I think that's one of the biggest elements in the development of any kid in sports is being able to keep a level of competition such that that kid is inclined to want to continue to get better. Yeah. And, and you were around a lot of good coaches, it sounds like too. So, I mean, including your father, who you said coached you a lot and did a lot of yeah, development. And so do you feel like that also, I mean, not only playing the sport, I mean, some people can be really good playing a sport, but not good coaches, um, sure. but you've got a blend of both um, because now kind of, that's kind of the direction that your career is taken. You do a lot of different co- types of coaching and I've experienced it one-on-one with you. It's, it's a very um, easy to follow and useful way to be coached. Like I enjoy the way you coach in the golf swing you probably do the same thing on the soccer field. Um, do you think that's because of the people you're around? Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, I even think that my, my passion to want to coach or to teach something along those lines was formulated by who I was exposed to growing up. You know, I mean, a lot of the people that had the biggest influence on my life were coaches. And so I just think it's natural that when that's the case, it's, it seems normal that you would kind of move in that direction. And um, those, those types of people were impactful in my life. So not only do I do it because of, of how they shape my life, but also the fact that that's the knowledge that I've kind of been inundated with. So, you know, we tend to kind of take what we know and what we've been inundated with and want to pass it along. And that's how I do it. Um, I kind of try to, I kind of try to coach thinking back of, on what got the most out of me, you know, as an athlete, what coach, what type of coach was it that drew out my very best? And, um, and so that's who I try to be in return. Um, so certainly it's shaped not only what I want to try to do or what I enjoy doing, but also how I do it. Mm -hmm. So travel basketball got you the exposure that you wanted and needed to be able to play Division One basketball. Um, you said you went to Air Force Academy to play basketball, but also um, you probably had other aspirations to become a pilot. Yeah, yeah I did. I had I had some uh, dreams of becoming a pilot. I mean, I think coming out of high school, um, I had some opportunities to, to play golf in college also. Um, my opportunities to play basketball were a little bit better um, and afforded me better options uh, from a scholarship perspective. So I went in that direction. And I think at that time I had a greater passion for basketball than I did for golf. Um, I kind of developed my passion for golf really probably in my later years um, after losing the opportunity to compete at basketball, my drive to still want to compete and, and do something on that level is what kind of pushed me back to basketball. I mean, back to uh, golf. And uh, we'll kind of get into that, I'm sure, but that's what led to my career choice even. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I was blessed a lot of, in a lot of ways with opportunities because of my parents and, um, and people that came into my life. And I don't take that for granted. You know, and I try to make sure my kids understand that too. Is, mm-hmm. I mean, people, the people that you surround yourself with and who you come in contact with, that's the biggest difference in your life. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I certainly don't take for granted what mine were. Uh, before we get to 
golf. Um, we haven't even really talked about. I didn't realize what age you started playing golf, and that you could have either pursued either one. But yeah. with basketball, Air Force, do you have any like highlights or one one or two little stories that were just like that made an impact on you while you were there playing basketball? I mean, like how oh, cool, yeah. how cool was that getting to play basketball for Air Force? It, it was really cool. I mean, just getting to be getting to be at the Air Force Academy was yeah. really really cool. I mean, there's I know there's a thousand stories. I remember vividly the day that I got dropped off by my parents. It's very, very different than a set of parents taking your child to a normal university on day one and helping them move in their dorm and give them a hug and giving them a, some food and some treats and saying, call us if you need us. When you go to the service academy, they rip the Band-Aid off. So they let your parents come actually to the edge of the threshold of the academy. There's an archway to the academy um, with a presidential quote over the archway. It says, bring us your boys and we'll make them men. And at that point is when my mom realized I'm losing my boy right here in her eyes. You know, that's what she felt like. And I didn't have that perspective at that time, but now I'm a father. It's very, very different. And I see things very di differently, but I remember vividly them, you know, they, they pretty much make you say bye right there. It's an open archway. There's no, there's no door stopping them from coming in, but there are definitely um, officers standing there who will let the parents know this is the, far, this is as far as you come. And, and they let you go and you walk about 10 steps and with them watching you. And as soon as you cross through that threshold, there is an upperclassman that comes running from the side, gets straight in your face and tells you what you're going to do from that point forward. Do you need to follow me? We're about to go shave your head off. We're about to take off all your clothes. We're going to throw them in a bag. You're left there with the underwear you've got on and a shaved head and you are theirs and they reinstitute you. So it's a very, very different, it's a weird experience, but I mean, the whole purpose is for them to tell you, I don't care if you made a 1500 on your SAT. I don't care if you were boy state. I don't care if you were this. Everybody here was that. So you're not anybody special anymore. Wow. You're the same as every guy up and down this line. And we're about to build you into something bigger, stronger, better. Yeah. And uh, so it's it's a lot to absorb at that age for the 18 year old, but it's also a lot to absorb looking back for the parent, you know, who, yeah. who sees that happen. So it's a neat experience. And I think uh, one that I, like I said, I'm very glad I went through, but I have a totally different perspective on it now that I'm a parent than I did at that time. Uh, that time you're almost eager to break away from your parents and become a man and to see what that's all about. Um, not in a bad way, but yeah. so it, that's, that's one that le left a mark on me and it's right at the very beginning, yeah, chapter one. Right away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you started playing basketball. I mean, you're what it was in the fall when you started there. So they start actually starting the summer because you go to uh, what they call basic cadet training okay. and the acronym for it is beast and it lives up to that name <laughs> you live at the base of pikes peak in some pretty uh, rigid conditions and um but it's more of the the training aspect of becoming the soldier before the academia starts um and then in the fall so you i went in uh i had about one week of summer following my senior year of high school to enjoy and then I was gone. And then you start school in the fall. Like you said, it's it's pretty consistent with a normal university calendar year at that point. But you go through three months of basic cadet training prior to that. 
So what was playing basketball like? Fun, uh, but eye-opening. Okay. And I'll say eye-opening from the standpoint of, and I think anybody who probably, except for the really, really elite athletes, anybody who plays college sports will tell you that there is a major jump from high school to college, and there's a major transition period that you have to go through. And a lot like how they, how the upperclassmen in the story I told you talked to you about your, any academic prowess you may have, it's very similar from the, from the athletic side when you get there and you realize in high school I was, you, you felt like you were one of the best athletes on the court at any time, right? And at the risk of that sounding bad, if that's how you should feel, if you're going to be a highly competitive athlete and you're good, you have to feel like you're one of the best on the court, but your, your experiences show that you were good. But when you get to college, you're just another player, especially as a freshman, amongst a bunch of guys who are really, really good athletes, and it's humbling. What, what used to be so easy to get to the basket and score or so easy to take one separation dribble and get a jumper off, not so easy anymore. Mm-hmm. Guys are longer, better, more athletic. There's more of them on the court. It's not just one superb athlete on the court again on the other team. It's everybody is. And so it's a different beast. The game is faster. It moves quicker. And that's what I remember the most about is how humbling it was. Mm-hmm. And I, in high school, I felt like I could get a shot off whenever I wanted to get a shot off. And that's not true in college, certainly not as a freshman. Mm-hmm. And I even see that, you know, I follow Texas A&M sports extremely closely across all sports and you see top-level recruits come in and maybe not even see the field their freshman year. So um, you can see a small component of that, but that's what I experienced, and it was it was humbling. Yeah, and here, I mean, Texas, no, no disregard to Air, or Air Force, but Texas A&M football, usually one of the top recruiting classes. No doubt. And then you still have freshmen that don't really see the field, and they're one of the best players in yeah, high the school cream in of the country. country. That's exactly right. <laughs> Um, so that's kind of like what it, what it is, like you're talking about. I mean, that's um, I didn't play college sports. I don't have that perspective of, okay, all of a sudden I'm just kind of like one of these other guys. Yeah. Um, I have a fun little question for you to see, see what you say about this. Um, one-on-one, you versus Gary Woodland, who wins? Basketball. Oh, wow. Basketball. For right those of you that don't right know, now, Gary Woodland. For those, okay, for those of you who don't know, Gary Woodland is a professional golfer, uh, U.S. Open champion. Right, U.S. Open, and he also is – he played basketball in college. Yes, he did. Um, so golf and basketball. So you think Gary takes you? Right now. Fifteen <laughs> years ago, you'd probably get a different answer. Yeah. And, and, I, and I only say that because – and I think I've heard – I've heard hundreds of athletes have – be opposed questions similar to this where they say, what do you think – how do you think you would play against this guy? And I think every athlete – worth his salt mentally answers the question the same way. I can't beat me because you have to believe that, you know, whether, whether it's true or not. So, I mean, Gary's got some pretty good size, especially for a professional golfer, people that don't follow the sport. And he's a pretty big guy. Um, but, you know, I'd like to think that maybe I might be a little quicker. I might have a little bit better shot. Yeah. Don't know until I've gotten Gary on the court, but, um, but right now, I'd be, I'd be hard-pressed to get out of there without an injury, <laughs> much less a victory. 
So same thing, you, Tony Finau, who would win that one? <laughs> oh, wow. I say me for sure in that one. Oh, Tony, yes. Awesome. I yeah, Tony Tony doesn't look very quick. I mean, he does play basketball. Yeah. He didn't play in college. Or he dislocated his ankle trying to turn around yeah, backwards. <laughs> that's true. He gets a lot of. Uh, for I mean, sure. I, I would need to make sure that I, I would need to make sure that I, I hit my shots because Tony's very tall, so he's going to get a lot of rebounds. But the, the thing about one on one is you have so much space. I mean, there's nobody else on the floor. Yeah. So if I can break you down off the dribble, I win. Oh, that's and that's the difference. And, and but when you're on the when you're on the basketball court, I can break my guy down off the dribble. But there's a rim protector there waiting on me when I get in the lane yeah. who's going to have other thoughts. <laughs> and so that's a totally different thing. But one-on-one, -on -one, I feel like the advantage goes to whoever's going to be quicker. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, you're going to want to take high percentage shots at the basket. You can take jumpers, uh, but you better hit them. Um, but, yeah, I, I'd say I'd, I'd like my chances better against Finau than Woodland. Yeah, I, listen, I heard an interview of both Tony Finau and Gary Woodland. Both of them were asked that same question because it was on the same podcast, and both of, of each them, other. Yes, and both of them said that they would win yeah. against Gary. Tony would beat Gary. Gary would beat Tony. That's how you should. And both of them had no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, so, it is. Yeah, I mean, it is. I didn't realize your extensive background in basketball, so I thought that'd be a fun little. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's certainly it's certainly my first. Even though you're probably a few years older than both of those guys, but yeah, that's right. Um, that's why 15 years ago, yeah, you would have beat them, right? Uh, 15 years ago, I'm picking me. <laughs> That's awesome. So um, you started, you, you finished up with basketball after two years there, right? Because you left and came to Texas A&M. One year. Oh, just one, one year. One year. Okay. Transferred. Yeah, I had up to two to make that choice. Okay. So you could stay at a service academy for up to two without on. And you were also, sounds like growing up, you were playing some golf. And how, how was, were, were you a good golfer in high school? That's probably another interesting story. I, I'll tell you. The best story for me about golf is how I got into golf. Um, I was 10 years old at the time. And as I mentioned, I played a lot of sports growing up. And one of my good buddies at that time, probably my best friend at the time, um, we played what little soccer I had ever been exposed to in my life. We played soccer together. Uh, we played football together. We ran track together um, and played basketball. And we would go play basketball at a – at a court in my neighborhood and I would ride my bike to his house and get him. He'd up on his bike. We'd ride to the court and play. And I went to his house one day and said, come on, let's go play basketball. And he was, he was a good athlete, but it, when it came to those other sports, I was always just a little bit better athlete than he was, but he would never back down from playing whatever we wanted to play. I mean, he, he'd never say, no, you're better. I'm not gonna play that or whatever. So he was a competitor. And I say that because that day I went to his house and told him to come play basketball. I said, no, I'm, I can't, I'm playing golf today. And I'm like, golf? <laughs> <You're 10 years laughs> yeah, what, what is, I mean, what's that all about? And so he said, um, why, don't, why don't you just come play golf with me today instead? And I gave him the old no, all the guys are waiting, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, just one time, come play golf with me. We play basketball every day. And I said, all right. So, I went to play golf with him. Uh, we lived in a, a neighborhood that had a golf course. I didn't have any clubs, of course. And so I used his clubs. Don't tell me you beat him. He beat the ever oh, yeah. tar out of me. <laughs> he beat me so bad. He beat me so bad that when it was over, I, I remember going home 
it it humiliated me, right? Because I played every sport and I'm a competitor and, and I can beat him in every other sport. And he just trounced me wow. and, go, and he made it look easy. And, and he had been playing for about three years at that time. He had moved from California. And so we were only 10. So he had been playing for a while and he was really, really good. Turns out he, he at age 13, he moved out to Georgia and he was the AJGA junior golfer of the year he was a phenomenal golfer. He went on to play at College of Charleston. Probably could have gone to any number of schools on the East Coast. Um, but he kind of, his love for golf died out. He, I think he easily could play professionally. But long story short, he shamed me into learning to play golf. Because, for one, he was a friend, and I like spending time with my friends. And I want to be able to spend time with him. And um, But at the same time, I didn't want to go out there and get my – tail kicked in. Yeah. Uh, so it made me want to practice. So I remember going home and telling my dad, my dad played a little golf at the time, very recreationally and saying, I need to get some clubs. And he's like, well, I bought your mom a set years ago. She never uses them. So, uh, he cut down one of her golden Ram six iron ladies, six irons for me. Nice. And I played with one club for my first year. I played with a six lady, six iron. <laughs> and within about a year, I was competitive with with my buddy, and um, and then we started going to junior golf tournaments together, and wow. we would finish first, second, back and forth exactly. all the time. We, but I, I never could get to where I could just dominate him. I mean, we we got close. Um, Were you self taught? I mean, did you take um, any lessons? Yeah, I would say I would say I was probably self taught. I mean, you know, we had I went to a couple of like junior golf clinics where a bunch of kids are grouped in the clinics, but in those in those types of settings, they don't teach you much more than here, stay in this spot and hold the club this way. And, mm -hmm. But at that point, I'd kind of already learned those fundamentals. Um, but I never took any private lessons my whole life. Um, I'm by my nature, I'm somebody who will study something pretty, I guess, uh, aggressively if, it, if I want to be good at it. And so I just... I learned, I, I, I give a lot of credit to Matt, my friend, I mean, for teaching me most of what I needed to know about the sport, at least early on. And um, just even from how to hold a club the very first time came from him and me watching what he would do and emulating him. And, and then I would do the same thing with uh, guys on TV. And I, we had two guys that played at my dad's club that were club champions multiple times who were really good golfers. And I remember as a kid sitting on my bicycle kind of by the putting green watching them hit balls and just trying to copy what I saw them doing. So I really, when I was little, my grandpa said, if you want to get rich, do what the rich people are doing. And I didn't know what he meant at the time, but as I got older, I understood. Basically, he's just saying, if someone's already got it figured out, copy them, you know. And so that's what I did as it relates to golf. And uh, that's what got me where I am today. I guess. You make it sound like it was easy, like playing junior golf. I mean, first and second place in all these tournaments, and then you're also you're, you're competing like in all the tournaments. Was this part of like the South Texas Junior PGA? Or it was a that was on a pretty small scale at the time. So I was playing at that time. It's called Central Texas Golf League. So you know, you played. I, I traveled just around this area until I got to be about 13, and then I played in the HGA. Um, and when I got to HGA, much like going from high school to college or whatever, the competition got a whole lot better. Um, but 
you know, I, w- I was still highly competitive. I would get top three finishes in those as a junior. I just – I would have big swings from year to year in my efficiency as a golfer because I devoted so little time to it mm-hmm. um, because I played so many other sports. Then I would come back to it and might have a good tournament here or there and then play poorly. And so I, I never – I never had any success consistently um, on that level, but um, enough success that it was it met the desire for me to compete and those types of things. And you meet fantastic kids doing that. And I think probably more than any sport you could ever play, what golf affords you so many other um, avenues to improve yourself as an individual, because there's no other sport where you're your own coach, you're your own referee, and you're your own advocate. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to call the penalties on yourself. You have at the end of the hole, you have to look another 12-year-old in the eye and say, "I made a five. What did you make?" And you'll have to agree upon it. There's some there's some social growth to that that I think is people take for granted, and you don't get those components playing football or basketball. Although those sports have a lot of uh, positives too. I just think golf has some things to offer that those other sports don't, and it's tremendous. And I didn't know it at the time. I just was a, a beneficiary of it. Here's a quick note from our sponsor, College Station Physical Therapy and Performance. We help active people in the Brazos Valley recover from injury, return to their active lifestyle, and reach their highest level of performance. Check out our website at collegestationpt.com if you are ready to feel better, move better, and perform better. Now back to the show. All right, so kind of transitioning out of uh, college, you finished playing basketball. You were still playing recreationally, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And then what happened when you came, came to Texas a and I mean, how did things start to change for you? Uh, well, really, the only thing that kind of guided me career-wise, I was, I was going to school. I was studying engineering. Um, and, but as I mentioned before, I I was missing the element of my life that had been, um, a a large component of my life up to that point was competition, being competing sports. And that was void. And I had to fill that void. At least I I felt compelled to at that time. And so, um, it was natural that I kind of gravitated toward golf. Um, I got my clubs back out and started playing and started wanting to play competitively and started playing in some amateur events and amateur qualifiers and state ams. Um, But what was difficult at that time was having access to practice facilities, (laughs) having access to things that were required for me to get better. And so I bridged that gap by trying to find a job at a golf course. Okay. Um, so I took a job at Pebble Creek. and This is in the mid-90s? Yeah, and okay. I was in the food and beverage side at that time. And you were in school? This was 94. working mm-hmm. full-time. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And this was 94. And so my first job there was just as a part-time waiter. I mean, I got on with the food and beverage uh, side of, of the business. And... Um, and Pebble Creek opened in like 91, right? 92, I think. 92? Okay. Mm-hmm. And the clubhouse wasn't even there at that time. Huh. And they were working out of a trailer. Uh, so, yeah, I got, I mean, I was, I've been a part of Pebble Creek since it was very young. Um, I, I jumped on board in its infant stages. Um, but I, 
anyway, that's what got me into golf. And uh, long story short, a few years of being around that and being part of the golf business and to generate the some additional funds that was required for me to pursue trying to play. And I was even playing on in some uh, mini tour events. So trying to maybe think about, do I want to try to play competitively and play professionally? And, um, you know, do I, is that a, a dream I might want to chase and to make some money to be able to fund that idea. And so I was teaching golf lessons too on the side and really saw that I had a passion for that and enjoyed the heck out of it. And so I kind of backed into that, realizing, man, this is something I feel like I could do for the rest of my life. Um, you know, I think everybody's heard the saying that if you really love what you do in your job, you don't go to work for a day in your life. And so I, I, I had always taken that to heart and wanted to try to find something that fit that, fit that motto. And uh, at that time, I felt like that's exactly what I had found. And so I, that's kind of how I backdoored into it as a business. And in 1996, I decided to uh, get into the PGA program and take the PAT, which anybody who's familiar with the program, um, the opening phase of the PGA program is to take, to play in a golf tournament, essentially what they call the playability test. And um, you, you essentially pay, play 36 holes in a single day it's a 36 hole event and they give you a target score mm. and you have to shoot that target score or better to pass. And on the surface, it seemed easy for me having had no experience um, with that kind of a format. What I say easy is I don't mean easy to achieve it, but it didn't seem like, okay, I got to go win the tournament or I got to finish in the top three. So you're not competing against other people at all. You're competing against yourself and the golf course. And to never have faced something like that, that was also very eye-opening because it's totally different. You, you stick your tee in the ground on the first hole and you already know this is the number you have to shoot. And let's say you're going to play 36 holes and you have to shoot 75-75. You know, you've got three bogeys around to give away and that's it. So you kind of already know how many bullets you have in your gun. You better not go firing them. And, uh, Was the score something like 150? Yeah, that's generally the target score is uh, relative to whatever the course rating is. And so on average, it varies from course to course, but on average, that's about what it's going to be. Okay. Um, and and so it's the, the setup of the golf course is easy, I would say, you know, from the standpoint of generally they don't put the pins in difficult places. They try to put them, you know, in approachable locations. Uh, I would say middle of the green, but that's it's not always the best spot on the green. But e even that being the case, it's knowing that it's your career, you know, that, that you're looking to try to achieve. And, kind of pressure. Yeah, and so it was very different. I didn't know what to expect, and so mentally, until I got into it, I, I remember um, my PAT. A lot of guys take it many, many times before they ever get in the program. And a lot of guys never get in the program because they can never pass it. Um, so in, in our industry, there's a, a joke that goes around saying that those guys are PAT tour players. <laughs> they spend their <laughs> life on the PAT tour. Um, That's hilarious. But yeah. So, so there's that element too, that you don't want to be thought of in that regard. And so there's all these different psychological uh, layers to it that you don't really even have the foresight to try to gather what they are until you stick your tee in the ground and play the first hole of the PAT. 
And uh, I remember I hit a very good drive off the first tee box and I hit a nice approach shot in the green. I, I had like a 18 footer for birdie and I hit what I thought was a pretty good putt as a downhill putt and it barely lipped out and it rolled about three and a half, four feet by. And I remember vividly to this day, like it feels like it was yesterday. I remember marking that putt and instead of thinking like you would normally think any other time about, okay, let's say par here or whatever. My thought instead was if I miss this and I make bogey, I got 35 more holes and only five more bogeys I can make, oh, you know, you, so you get in your own it's head. Not the, that way way. You thinking. not the way you want to be thinking. So as you might guess, I missed that putt. Yeah. And, uh, so I remember walking from that green to the second tee box, giving myself what I would refer to on a family podcast as a stern talking to, <laughs> but basically, basically saying to myself what any good coach would say to a player to get them, get their mind right, you know, and that's the cool thing about golf is that you are your own inner coach. And so that's what I did. I took that opportunity to give myself a little coaching as I walked to the next tee and, um, played much better after the next 27 holes or the next 26 holes I played in two under. So I, with nine holes left, I was one under. So I can be very conservative, I guess, over the last nine holes and just do what I needed to do. But it made me, I think that start was probably exactly what I needed because I would have been in my own head the whole time. Um, but I, I, I never take for granted guys that are going to play in the PAT by telling them, it's very, very different. If you go out every day and you shoot 75, expect to shoot 78 under those conditions. Just because of the mental strain, it's going to put on you shot after shot after shot after shot, putt after putt. And so it's different. Um, if you want to be able to shoot 75 under those conditions, feel comfortable about shooting 72, 71 on a normal day. Um, so. You know, it's, it was a good learning experience for me, but that's how I got into it. That's how I got started and um, I've been in the business ever since. I, I, I transitioned after taking the PAT over from the food and beverage department into the golf department. Um, I started mentoring under the pro who was there at that time. His name was Blake Bingham. Um, and by 2002, I had one of our members was friends with another gentleman who was opening a golf course in Navasota at that time, which has become leaks anybody from this area is familiar with. And they approached me and um, he approached me having been recommended by the member of the club, thinking that I would be a good fit for him as a golf professional, as a general manager, essentially. Um, Cause they would just try to get that property off the ground. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, he made me an offer. And I thought at that time I needed to get out of my comfort zone and, take that offer, even though I didn't, wasn't sure if I was ready, I was young and GMing a brand new property and they didn't have anybody else out there. It, would have, it was essentially me, a green superintendent and then build a staff. So I was going to be responsible for, you know, the marketing, the advertising, building the business, not just being a golf. And, uh, but I, I was excited about that challenge, you know, and so being the competitor that you are, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's where it came from. Um, it didn't come without stress. I mean, my wife will tell you at that time, I even took on some, uh, some physical ramifications. I guess you would say, I remember getting 
this this lump on my face. Okay. Yeah, at that time, trying to make the decision if I was going to do it. And and uh, the doctor that I went and saw says like he's like, well, I, you know, are you under any stress or anything right now? I said, well, I'm kind of making a big decision, or at least it feels yeah. like a big one at this stage in my life. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I think that's what that's wrong. So I do remember that, you know that component to it, but it was fun and invigorating at the time. And I learned a ton from that job mm-hmm. and it helped me grow a lot. And it was at a pretty formative stage in my life too, because I was a new father. And so I felt like I had all the components in place to make sure that I would be compelled to succeed. You know, I think that's what kids in a family do. One mm-hmm. thing for you is that they're a great incentive for you to not give up and to keep doing whatever you want to do because you know you got a lot of people you don't want to let down not just you right so i, I try to use that as a positive that's all. Yeah, if you didn't already have uh, a wife and a daughter right your first was yeah yeah it. my first so was that daughter. was right whenever you were yeah. making the decision she decision was 18 years ago she was born in 2001 and i made the decision in 2002 she, she had just been born yeah so mm-hmm. it would have been a little different possibly i mean if it was just you yeah like yeah. you wouldn't have the same kind of motivation no doubt about it because you all of a sudden became an entrepreneur. You weren't just handed a job and said, here, go do this. That's exactly right. You were like given a business and said, build it. And, and I may have been less compelled to even say yes to the opportunity. Um, so I, that's not lost on me. It may have been a little bit at the time, but um, I'm a pretty retrospective person, I think. And so I, as, as I examined stuff like that, I, you know, I realized that I owe my ability to have been at least moderately successful in that role to the fact that to my wife and my daughter at that time, eventually my other two kids. So, you know, they continue to be the reason why I feel like I want to be successful, but also the reason why I just in general want to be a good person, Mm -hmm. you know, so their, their influence isn't lost on me in any of those things I've undertaken. And you did that for about six years or so? Exactly six years, um, which is the timetable is kind of coincidental from the standpoint of my youngest daughter. My last child was born in 2007, um, right before I made the leap to leave there, um, which was a very comfortable situation for me at that time. And I had uh, I had built something that I felt like I was vested in, you know, and, and so I had some some form of pride in what I had accomplished there too. So that was hard to divest myself from. Um, but I'd also formed a really close relationship with the owner and um, seen him as a mentor for that six year period in my life. We became very close. And uh, so to make the decision to leave him, to leave what he and I had built together and, and to leave something that was comfortable for me and to go to the new role at Pebble Creek wasn't easy for me either. Um, but for the very same reasons that I made the choice the first time I made them again, mm-hmm. the second time, um, I tell my kids that in general, you'll come to, you'll come to a crossroad in your life a lot. And I don't take credit for this cause I heard it from someone much wiser than me. Um, and you have to make a choice. And if you can break it down as simply as, one choice will be will seem kind of easy and the other choice will seem hard. And 99% of the time, the hard choice is the right choice. Mm-hmm. And if you follow that path, that's, that's a pretty simple rule to follow. Mm-hmm. But even in 
something as simple as trying to tell the truth, you'll find that that's a solid roadmap. And so I followed that roadmap at that time, you know, and I, I try, it's not easy roadmap to follow. It's not easy. Yeah. Um, but I try to follow it whenever I can. And, uh, it's, it's gotten me to a pretty good place so far. Yeah. I've, I've never heard that before, but I've experienced it. Yeah. Actually. I mean, the hard choice and the easy choice. And now that, you know, you bring that up, you use, uh, usually make the hard choice. Yeah. And and that it, usually is the right choice. No doubt about it. For you. And it's very applicable to kids, the teenage kids, you know, that in their formative years, and they're going to be put in positions where a lot of times it's going to be easy to just go with this when this is the hard way to go. And you're going to come out right 99% of the time if you take the hard one. And I think that's true in almost any phase of life. But, um, like I said, I've, it's a simple doctrine that I've tried to adhere to. I failed at it many times. Uh, that's my confession, but I think it's, that's only human nature. You're going to do that. Um, but it, I think if the more you stick to it, the better off you'll be. Yeah. And so then you've, now you've got three girls. Mm, no, I've got a boy in the middle. Okay. Three kids, mm-hmm. 18, 16, 13. But in 2008, when you started at Pebble Creek, um, you basically just transitioned right into the same kind of role you're in with Pecan Lakes. Yeah, very similar. Um, I was, so title wise, I was head golf professional at Pebble Creek at that time. Um, I was a general manager at Pecan Lakes, but we only really had a golf department and then a small cafe and restaurant. We weren't running private events or it wasn't the scale that Pebble Creek is. So although the titles were a little different, um, my job responsibility was very, very similar, but the staffing model and hierarchy was different from the standpoint of, I would go to be working for a general manager at Pebble Creek. So I would have an employed boss above me, whereas the only person I answered to at Pecan Lakes was the owner. And so that, that dynamic was going to be different. You know, I'm going to have a boss and then an owner and then members also to make sure that you make happy and you meet, you satisfy the requirements of the job. Whereas Pecan Lakes was a public facility. So I had to make one person happy every day when I got to work, it was my owner. Um, and at Pebble Creek, that dynamic changed drastically. Yeah. And so as you're, you've transitioned there, kind of similar role other than what you just said, but then now you've got the three kids, you're trying mm-hmm. to balance raising these kids um, and also them getting involved in other activities and so you're you're working full time. You've got this family. What what's it been like over the last 12, 13 years seeing your kids kind of grow up and play different sports? Um, how's that kind of changed what what you do now? It's first off, I guess the first part of your question has been incredibly fun. To I mean, I, you know, anybody um, that doesn't have children, it's hard to explain to them, you know, how enriching it is. Um, to have kids and probably, you know, as much as I loved playing a basketball game, I remember thinking back when I was a kid, just loved playing a basketball game. It is a fraction of how much I love watching my daughter play a basketball game, you know? So it's, it's difficult to explain that to somebody, but that part's been fulfilling, enriching, amazing. Um, one of the, one of the unique things about my profession is that I was able for my kids to, to be a part of what I do professionally a lot too, because when I would put on junior clinics and summer camps, they could come to the camps and clinics and be a part of it. And, and we got to share time together as part of my job. 
And so that's unique. And um, I, I enjoyed that a lot. I tell people all the time, I had three shots at making a golfer and I was 0 for 3, so I struck out. <laughs> um, they're all good. They all like the game, but none of them, you know, fell in love with the game. And golf's a game, as you know, that you kind of have to fall in love with. Um, mm -hmm. And you either get bitten by the bug or you don't. And it's kind of a polarizing game. People play it, I think, one time, and they either know I want nothing to do with this game or where can I get more. So uh, I, I got to watch my kids do all of that, but also, you know, even outside of golf, I've tried to be as involved as I can in their adventures, whether it's sports or academics or whatever else. And where I feel like wherever I can contribute, I try to. Um, that's kind of where soccer is interesting because all the sports I played, I played football, basketball, ran track, played golf, um, and played baseball. Um, I maybe played a little city league soccer when I was six, seven, eight years old, something like that. But so I had very, of the only sport that I have very little to offer, <laughs> soccer was it. And my youngest daughter fell in love with soccer. My oldest daughter fell in love with volleyball. So I just was a glorified spectator at that point. I have very little to offer. But when it comes to my daughter, my youngest daughter, at that point, this is my last kiddo. So I felt compelled to, I need to learn about soccer as much as I can. Mm -hmm. And so like, like I was mentioned earlier with everything else that I do in life, I kind of dived into it pretty yeah. deep. And so I just started studying as much soccer as I could get my hands on for the yeah. last four or five years, probably. Four or five. So the last four or five years is when you started getting into soccer. And um, now kind of where is that taking you? Your youngest is playing for the Blazers. So mm -hmm. it's a, a club team, select team here. Yeah, and I've been a, a spectator and a dad for the better part of that five years. I would say um, almost four years of it. Uh, but in the last year, uh, we have – um, our, our coach and trainer for the club team, his name is Alfredo Salinas, amazing guy, uh, amazing soccer player, amazing soccer mind. Um, he, uh, what, what Alfredo lacked was the ability to communicate to the kids. You know, he, he had all of the ideas um, and understood it almost on a level where it was just intrinsic, you know, for him. But he, he struggled to get those points across. I mean, for one, his he's he's bilingual. His natural language is Spanish, so he's incredibly fluent in English and speaks it very well. But that's part of the bridge of the you know the gap there. And um, but part of it is just him. He's very young. He's young, so it's part of it's him learning how do I communicate these ideas. And not only is it difficult to communicate those ideas that you understand so easily to someone your age, but then try to do it to a 12 or a 13 year old girl, you know, it becomes even more challenging. If you haven't had any experience with that, then those can be some hard roadblocks for you. And so he approached me a year ago and said, can you help me? <laughs> he said, I just, there, I have the concepts. I have the ideas. I'm just, they're just not, I can see it. They're not hearing me. They're not getting it. And when I look in, in their eyes, it looks blank sometimes. And I said, sure, I'll help. I first went and asked my daughter if she'd be okay with that. And uh, and she uh, gave me her blessing. So then yeah. I went back and told him I would help. And it's it's been awesome. We've had a great time. 
and the girls have been very responsive to it and we've made huge strides as a team. So um, I think, like I said earlier, when I coach, I try to be, I try to be the coach that I felt like I got the most out of. Um, so I try to coach in that manner. And I basically tell our athletes, our girls, that if you can bring two qualities to the field every day, um, we'll help teach you the, the rest. And the only two qualities I, I ask for is to be coachable. I think that's the number one quality that any athlete should have and any coach would tell you. I don't care how much talent they have. If they're not coachable, I don't want them. And, and so I think if you can instill that in a young athlete, then you prepare them for their growth, not in life in general. Um, because if, if nothing else, I would like girls that, that played on our team now to go to the next level and for that coach to say, every one of these girls is extremely coachable. And the other quality I ask them to bring is to be pushable, be coachable and be pushable. Because essentially, I think a coach is, has two main jobs I mean, to teach, coach, however you want to look at that, to, to show them things that they don't already know and to get more out of them than they believe they can get out of themselves. It's that simple if you break it down. And so for me to perform those two jobs, they need to be receptive to those two things. And so that's what we tell them. That's what we tell the girls. And just every day when they come to practice, I remind them today, I need you guys to be coachable. I need you to be pushable. And that kind of gets their mind frame right to let me push them. Because if they don't want to be pushable, then I can't run them that extra lap or I can't make them go through those extra drills or whatever it takes. And, uh, you know, if you like I told them, a lot of my coaches, I didn't like them till the end. You know, and that probably means they were a good coach because if I could, I couldn't see the forest for the trees when I was that age. And I didn't know that they were getting more out of me than I would have gotten out of myself. And so that's kind of the philosophy I bring to the coaching side of it. Um, and we've had, it's, it's been good so far. I'm, I'm loving it. And um, it's, just another opportunity for me to get to spend more time with my daughter too. So yeah, that's a plus. That is absolute gold. Like what you just said, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if you realize like how awesome that will be like and useful for people that are like dads that are getting into coaching. I mean, just simply breaking it down like that to where you just have them bring in two qualities and then from there you take it. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, if you lead with that, like what you probably do, like, yeah. you, I mean, then that, that, weeds out the ones that don't want to be there or don't need to be there. And then it gives you, sets you up for success as well as them. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, a part of it is if you have, if you have people that don't buy into that philosophy that are part of the team, um, you know, I think that they can hold back the other girls, you Mm -hmm. know, and so, or or boys or whomever for that matter. I mean, I just happen to be working with girls in this instance, but, um, and I think if, that is true of almost any team sport. If everybody is, it's it's cliche, but if everybody's on the same page, um, you're going to be able to get a whole lot more done and you're going to be a lot more successful. And um, But I want them, there's another philosophy that I adhere to and I have in all of my teaching and coaching, but just in life in general. And that is people don't care how much you know. 
until they know how much you care. And so if you can show your kids, look, I care about you. I really care about you. I care about you getting better. I care about what you do. I care about what you achieve. And they're a whole lot more likely to listen to the way you have to say. Um, and so I, that's been a good philosophy that's helped me, you know, kind of formulate how I coach or teach and just how I form relationships in general. Um, because like a lot of what coaches gave to me growing up was more about life than I thought it was at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I want to make sure I have that component in what I do for the girls too. Well, I think we can go on another, a whole nother episode about coaching, <laughs> <laughs> but we've got to get the ending questions here. Um, we got to kind of wrap it up. Here. Sure. So number one, what hobby or activity or sport would you like to try outside of anything you've done to this point? I ask all my guests this. Uh, Most people have answered some kind of sport. Or... Skydiving. All right. Awesome. Skydiving for sure. Um, never done it? Never done it. I, so, But you would want to get to the point where you're like instructing. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Probably. You wouldn't just want to go once. I, go wouldn't go, I wouldn't go into it with that mentality, but knowing me, it may get to that point. I solo skydiving or tandem? I mean, you got to start tandem. I have to start tandem, but yes, yeah. solo. I mean, it wouldn't feel like I skydived yeah. until I did it exactly. unattached to anyone else. Um, I did some jump training, you know, at the Air Force Academy. Okay. Um, and what, which, which is kind of a prerequisite to that, but never got to the phase where I got to do the skydiving. That just would seem so liberating and <laughs> challenging and face your fears and everything all at once wrapped into one. So yeah, yes, that's it. So I think I know the answer to this next one. Was there any other sport you considered pursuing as a career, whether it be playing? It would have been basketball. I mean, basketball and really that was, I pursued that first, you know, but it didn't take me long to realize I wasn't going to play at a level past where I was. And realistically golf, I had a, I mean, that, that, that could have been possible, you know, if you'd have, if I had the opportunity to apply myself, certainly if I had had an opportunity to apply myself earlier. Um, so, so it wasn't completely unrealistic, but yeah, when I was a kid, basketball was certainly a dream. I wouldn't mm-hmm. call it a dream. And, uh, you know, at some phase you realize, okay, I've topped out. That's all I've got. That's yeah. all I have to offer. Um, but yeah, that's those two really. That yeah. was it. And we, and we talked about this, off the mic, but I mean, you did have something later that happened. I mean, you had a in- pretty bad injury mm-hmm. that's kind of stopped you from playing basketball now. Yeah, like we talked about, I, you know, I, I don't know that I would even deem it an injury as much as a condition because there wasn't one particular time where it just occurred, you know. But technically, yes, uh, I have degenerative discs in my back. And so my L4, L5, L5, S1 at this stage in my life now are completely desiccated. So there's, I'm probably an inch shorter or close to it than I was mm-hmm. even in college because I don't have any disc left. Um, but that slowly occurred over time and got to the point where I had specialists telling me, look, you need to, it's, it's compression damage. Um, I have, I was born with some stenosis of the spine. So my spine is too mm-hmm. straight from, if you look at it from the side, not enough curvature. And so because of that, the bottom of my spine takes all the compression damage. And long story short, it ruined my bottom two discs. And I had experts tell me I needed to stop playing basketball or I could do permanent damage. Yeah, I think um, I've learned over the years what I can and can't do and what my limitations are. And I certainly can't perform athletically like I 
feel like I, I would want to. Um, I feel like the rest of my health is on a totally different level than the health of my spine. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, my joints, my knees, my ankles, I've been very fortunate in my life, played all the sports I did and never have any serious injury, never uh, broke a bone or tore a ligament or, you know, I, I had a twisted ankle here or there. I, I mean, broke my nose a couple of times, mm-hmm. um, but nothing major uh, that would prevent me from being able to play. Mm-hmm. And, um, but the back was, is, is that way. And it yeah. happened over time. Um, so now I just live with it. I'm thankful that it's not debilitating to the point where I can't play golf. Um, uh, we talked a little bit about how mindful I had to be of, of my posture and my position and my mechanics in golf so that, uh, I can play golf, you know, pain-free. Um, and so I've been very fortunate. I, you know, if, if I play, I may end the day with some soreness in the back. Um, but nothing like the pain that mm-hmm. comes from some of the uh, other episodes we've talked about. So like, again, I feel blessed that I can still do that and hoping the good Lord lets me keep uh, being able to do that for the rest of my life. And, yeah. and I'll gladly trade off the basketball. Well, you've, it sounds like you've kind of come to terms. <laughs> yeah, I've come, I've come to terms. I'm sure that was difficult playing your whole life. It was, it, it, it was more difficult over the last 10 years, I would say, because you know, even 10 years ago, I still felt incredibly young, so to speak, and, and very vibrant as it relates to wanting to do something athletically and just wanting to just break a hard sweat, you know, and I think an athlete can appreciate that. Golf, as much as everything that it does give you, it doesn't give you that element. and It doesn't give you the, you know, go hard and get your heart rate up and break a sweat and uh, and whatever it is, whether it's uh, chemical, whether it's dopamine in your system that's giving you that rush when you play, whatever that is, you miss it. And uh, and I missed it. But I think the time away from it has allowed me to come to terms with it. That and my wife telling me she, she'll shoot me if, if she ever sees me playing basketball. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever considered triathlon? There were times, yeah. You can get your you can get your heart rate up doing yeah, that. Yeah, there were times. Break a sweat um, and you're in a straight line the whole time. Yeah, I, I you know, I've never been. I, I ran track and I like the competitive side of track, but it's my least favorite sport. Um, and I, I don't know what it is, but I think it has to have a ball for me to really. Yeah, I mean, it's a different beast. Endur- oh, it is. Endurance yeah. sports are. Yeah, and it's are it's only just about the mental, you know, and can I, yeah. over, can I it, overcome? It gets to where it's mostly mental. No doubt I mean, about kind it. Of like golf, but no doubt about I mean, it. yeah, the more I get into it, the more I realize this is way more mental than I ever thought it would be. Yeah. And, and I don't presume to know it cause I haven't participated in something like that on that level, but that, that I would, I would suspect that's the yeah. case cause I, I have a great appreciation for people who do that kind of stuff for sure. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you, you, you talked a little bit about coaching earlier. And one thing I know about you is part of your your coaching style is you've always got an analogy. Like how how did you come up with all these analogies? Like is this something you learned, or are you just like really quick to think of something like that? Um, maybe more of the former than the latter, but a little of both. Um, you know, I think I will, how I built my toolbox of analogies was probably at one point coming up with them out of necessity at that, at that given time. But if I found that it was applicable and effective, then 
I would keep it in the box and use it again. Um, and so it's, it's a little of both, but I just, over time you, you accrue those things and find out which ones work effectively and which ones don't. And, um, you know, I've, I can certainly tell you I've fired them off and they've not been effective. So they didn't make the team. Yeah. But um, I, I find that that's a good tool for a lot of people um, because it allows them to have a frame of reference for something that they might not otherwise have. One thing about golf is it's so unique. You know, even in its biomechanics, there's nothing else that we do that's similar to it. So it's hard sometimes to for people to assimilate what you're telling them if they don't have a frame of reference. And so analogies kind of help to bridge that gap sometimes, at least from the learning perspective. And, um, and they can sometimes also paint a picture for somebody. And um, part of the challenge in being a, a teacher or a coach, however you want to look at that is that you have to find out whether that student, what that student is responsive to from a learning perspective, are they audio or are they visual? Because people learn differently too. Mm -hmm. And, part of the challenge of being really good at that is finding out what kind of person they are first and then teaching to that. And, um, and so it's, I, I, one analogy I use for something like that is like going into a dark room and, and there's a thousand light switches on the wall and, uh, you don't know what switch is going to turn the light on for that person. So as a teacher, the best thing to do is just start flipping switches until you see a light come on and the responsiveness to how, you know, they take that information and then, you know, okay, that's their switch. And that helps also for you to understand what kind of learner they are. Mm -hmm. And so then you, that's, that's where you go. You go back into that room over and over and teach to that philosophy into that perspective. And then that way you can find a connection with that individual student. And um, so that's why I've always used that technique. It's been effective. I love it. Talking about analogies with analogies. Yeah. <laughs> You can't resist. It sounds like you're very strategic with them as well. I mean, you've kind of weeded out some of the bad ones, but also that bad one may work for somebody else. So yeah, yeah, you're you right. you got to be strategic about it. So um, next to last question, what's the best advice you would give someone that is wanting to get into golf or soccer? Um, first of all, try to do it, I would say, from a, an enjoyment standpoint. Start there. Um, especially as it relates to golf, because to, to get good at golf, you have to have the patience to wait on it. It comes more slowly. And so as you start to formulate that and you say, okay, I need to be patient and I'm going to have to wait to be patient, to wait on something, you better love it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so I think it's vital that, that the kid or the child, the athlete, however you want to look at them, learns to love that sport first, because if they fall in love with it, if you can get them to love it, then they'll start to get better at it. And as they get better at it, then they're, then they're bought in. And, uh, and at that point you can start to coach them differently. Like for, for the girls that I coach now for my daughter's team, they're, uh, you know, 13 years old, they're at the level where you can coach them like true athletes and you can push them a little bit harder. And, but, you know, I coached all my kiddos, even my daughters in basketball. And when they're nine and 10, I coached them very, very differently. You know, I coached them to love the game. Um, and I still want need that to be an important element, but even like a college or a high school level coach would tell you, 
you hope that that component is inherent in the athlete by the time that they get them or else they wouldn't still be coming out to play if they didn't love the game. And so I think you have to do it in that order. And I think you can maybe even scare a child away from a given sport when they first get started if you don't teach them to love it first. So teach them to love it first and there's levels to their growth. And then once once they're bought in and they love it and they have a passion for it, then you can get, then you can push them a little bit and see how far they want to go. And uh, I always even tell the parents of students that I work with in golf on a, on a private level, when they ask me, well, how, you know, how often do I need to be bringing my kid to a lesson? How much do they need to work and practice? And I, I, I let them know early on, get that feedback from the child first. Ask them how hungry are they? How much do they want? And once you feel like that they're bought in and passionate about it, then you can push that envelope a little bit. Hey, I'm glad you're hungry. I, I want to see, can we take you next level? I want to see if between me or a coach or somebody else, if we can get more out of you than you believe you can get out of yourself. That's the next phase. Awesome. That's awesome yeah. advice. <laughs> yeah. So the last thing is, um, we'll put this actually in the show notes. You don't have to tell us any details right now, but we want to make sure, I mean, if any way people can reach out to you or contact you, um, whether it's email or social media, what would be the best way? Definitely. I mean, probably email is the best way to get a hold of me. Um, you know, once we've established any kind of rapport, uh, any of my contacts, either it be golf, soccer related or whatever, I'll exchange personal contact information, cell phone, text. That's a good way to get a hold of me. But uh, I would say initially email is probably the best way. Um, you can go through uh, the website at Pebble Creek at uh, www.pebblecreek.cc. And um, we'll have member profiles or employee staff profiles on there. You'll find my email address that way. Certainly, as you mentioned, we can uh, leave it in the notes for people to get a hold of me. Also, as it relates to any um, kids that are wanting to get involved in golf, that's probably the best way to do it is to go through Pebble Creek directly and get a hold of me that way. If, if there's some kiddos interested in playing soccer, uh, we love to grow the club. We love to have new kids involved. Um, and so we would welcome anybody to come out. We have open practices quite a bit um, where we encourage girls that are interested to come out. And after a couple of practices, they can let us know if they're interested in continuing. Um, it's competitive level club soccer, so it doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to make the travel team. But when we have tryouts at different components and different times of the year, um, then they'll know whether or not they make the travel team. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that they we wouldn't still have them come out and practice and train with us. Um, they. They just wouldn't travel for the tournaments and the games. So essentially, there's two different levels of the team that they could make. What that means is we take all comers, uh, yeah. new, raw, experienced. Um, no matter who you are, we want you to be a part of what we're doing, and we'd love to have you. Um, but it's just a matter of whether or not you know they're skilled enough to make. Because we're limited in club soccer to have an 18-person roster, so we can't carry more than 18 to a tournament. So we have to cut the line, draw the line somewhere as it relates to the travel squad versus how big the whole club squad can get. Yeah. So we'll put that in the show notes too, how they can get in contact with Blake. Yeah, and, and I'll give them the direct contact for our trainer and coach. Uh, Alfredo Salinas is his name. Okay. He does a tremendous job. Uh, we're certainly blessed to have him. He's a great soccer mind. So um, they can contact him directly and he can get them connected. Well, Chad, this has been awesome. I mean, super informative. I love hearing your stories, love hearing your analogies, your coaching tips. <laughs> how everything's going with your family. Uh, 
thanks again for coming on to the Active Texan podcast. This has been awesome. Absolutely. It's been an honor for me and I appreciate you inviting me. For more information about College Station Physical Therapy and Performance, please visit our website at collegestationpt.com or check us out on Facebook at College Station Physical Therapy and Performance or on Instagram at College Station PT. That's it for today. Please subscribe so you don't miss the next podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody, to The Active Texan.